prophet Isaiah. Probably the most important prophet, prophetic book in the Bible. It is uh, given to us as the first one. Uh, not because it was written first, but because of its importance. And obviously, all the Word of God is important. It's hard to, to put any particular book above the rest, but the prophet Isaiah is extremely important. 411 verses of Isaiah are recorded in the New Testament. That's uh, about twice as many as even the Psalms. So it is a very, very important uh, prophecy um, from and through the prophet Isaiah. Okay, let's look at verse 1 of chapter 1. It says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Go over to chapter 6, please. In the 6th chapter, this is the chapter where Isaiah receives his call into the prophetic ministry. Isaiah 6 and 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain He covered His face. With twain He covered His feet. And with twain He did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of Him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am uh, undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs off the altar. He laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here I am, Lord, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man the land be utterly desolate. And the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. But yet in it shall be a tenth. And it shall return and shall be eaten as a till tree and as an oak whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves. So the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. And everybody said, Amen. 
Father God, we thank you right now for your awesome word. We ask God that you'd inspire us to teach it and to hear it, to receive it. We thank you for this opportunity to be in this house tonight, God. We ask that your will would be done, Lord Jesus, in and through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated in the name of the Lord. All right, the date of the prophecy of Isaiah is 740 B.C. through 701 or 702 B.C. That's the date of the prophecy of Isaiah. Okay? Now, Isaiah, the Bible tells us, if you look at verse 1, he is the son of Amoz. Amoz is believed to be the brother of of King Amaziah. If that's the case, then Isaiah is royal blood. Okay? And that would explain his access to the court and his access to kings. For example, when we get to Isaiah 7, you'll see Isaiah can walk right up to King Ahaz and begin a conversation with him. Obviously, there's not a lot of secret service in those days. Amen. But to be able to approach a king like that so easily is still difficult to do. But this man Isaiah had an ability to walk up to kings and communicate with kings relatively easy. So it is believed, and again this is tradition, that the brother of his father was King Amaziah, which would explain why he as a person of royal blood would have access to kings like he did. So this is where we get the idea that Isaiah was a brilliant court preacher. We uh, study the Search for Truth lessons. If you teach the home Bible study, you will tell people, as the manual says, that Isaiah was a brilliant court preacher. And he was. He was a tremendous orator. He had huge ability, huge vocabulary, vocabulary, tremendous poetry. He was a brilliant court preacher having access to kings. Royal blood flowing in his veins. The Chronicles also tell us that he was a chronicler. That means he wrote Chronicles. Not the book of Chronicles, but he wrote Chronicles in the sense that he kept diaries of the court. So this man was a very, very brilliant prophet who had royal blood flowing through his veins, who had access to kings, a brilliant court preacher. And uh, his book is the longest, except for the Psalms, in the Old Testament. So his book is very important. 401 verses are found in the New Testament. And uh, it is a very, very awesome book to study. He saw from his day all the way to the kingdom age. In fact, beyond the kingdom age into the new heavens and the new earth. An amazing prophecy that we're about to look at. Amen. Praise the Lord. Isaiah is also believed to have been a prophet that was martyred. In the book of Hebrews, the 11th chapter, it talks about uh, some were cut in half or sawn asunder. Tradition says that that was Isaiah the prophet. That Manasseh, King Manasseh, took him and put him between uh, two pieces of wood or trees 
and literally sawed that prophet in two. So where you read in Hebrews chapter 11, the heroes of faith, where it says some were cut asunder, it is believed traditionally that that's talking about the prophet Isaiah. So as great a prophet as he was, as brilliant as he was, a diarist, a man who kept records for the court, having royal blood flowing through his veins, he still didn't survive martyrdom. He was faithful to God all the way to the very end. So the great prophet of the Lord. Amen. When we study the prophet Isaiah, I want to give you sort of an overview of the book as a whole before we break it down. In Isaiah chapter 1, it's very interesting that there are parallels. In Isaiah chapter 1 and then Isaiah chapter 6, the first chapter and the last chapter, okay? Now, let's look at some of those. In chapter 1 and verse 2, look at it. It says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. So in that verse, we see in verse 2, a call to hear. Go over to Isaiah 65, the last, or excuse me, Isaiah 66, the last chapter. And you will see the parallel there in verse 14. In this verse, it says, instead of hearing, it says to see. Alright, verse 14, When ye see this, your heart shall rejoice. So we have in chapter 1, where the prophet talks about hearing. In chapter 66, we see a parallel where they are seen. Do you see that? Amen. Alright. In verse... 7 of chapter 1 the Bible says they'll be destroyed by fire verse 7 your country is desolate your cities are burned with fire your land strangers devour in your presence go over to Isaiah 66 and verse 15 the parallel for behold the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. So we see a parallel between the first chapter and the last chapter. We see destruction. First chapter, seven, uh, chapter 1 verse 7. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land strangers devour in your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. And the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. So go over to chapter 66, and verse 16. The parallel there of destruction. For by fire, by his sword, will the Lord plead with all flesh, and the slain of the Lord shall be many. You see that parallel? All right, then restoration, chapter 1, verse 9. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. So that speaks of uh, restoration. Look at verse 18 of chapter 1. 
Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you be willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with a sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. How is the faithful city become a harlot? It was full of judgment. Righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Thy silvers become dross, thy wine mixed with water. Thy princes are rebellious, companions of thieves. Everyone loveth gifts, and followeth after rewards. They judge not the fatherless, neither doth the cause of the witty widow come unto them. Therefore saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, I will ease of mine adversaries and avenge me of mine enemies. Amen. All right, chapter 1 and verse 2 speaks of a witness. Okay, let me back up. Okay, uh, I don't want to go too fast. Our first chapter 1 verse 9 speaks of restoration. 24 through 26 speaks of restoration. Verse 26, I will restore the judges as at the first. Thou counselors as at the beginning afterward thou shalt be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. And then chapter 66, verse 22. Excuse me for that. Verse 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so, your, so shall your seed and your name remain. It shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, one from one Sabbath to another, Shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. They shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched. They shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. So we have restoration. Uh, again, chapter 1, verse 9, and 24 through 26. And then we have 66, verses 18 through 24. Okay, witness. Chapter 1, verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I've nourished up and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. And then in chapter 66, and verse 23. It shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. So witness there. And then chapter 1, and verse 13. Bring no more vain oblations, incenses, and abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with it. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. So in that chapter, we see that men have corrupted the Lord's Sabbaths. In chapter 66, we see there will be a restoration of the Sabbaths. Verse 23, it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. So you can see parallels there. In chapter 1, we have the corruption of what God established. In chapter 66, we have the restoration. Okay? So there's parallels, chapter 1, and then chapter 66. Now, in chapter 1 of Isaiah through chapter 5, there is a layout of the whole prophetic book. So when you study and you read those five chapters, what Isaiah is going to be preaching is given to you first in those five chapters, okay? 
He's going to give you the state or the condition of the nation of Israel. Then He's going to talk about judgment upon them. And then He's going to talk about restoration in those five chapters. That's going to cover the whole prophetic message of Isaiah. The layout is there in those five chapters. Okay? Now what is interesting about these five chapters is that they're set up like an envelope. So the first chapter, the second chapter, we have things that are said. Uh, the fifth, okay, like fifth, fourth. Okay, you with me coming back this way? And then first and second and third, so on. So some of the same things that are said in chapter 1 are said in chapter 5. And as you go through the, the chapters, they kind of meet in the center. So it makes like an envelope. So let me point that out to you so you understand what I'm talking about. Okay, chapter 1. Verses 1 through 26. We have an indictment. Okay. Now we've already covered this last week about how the prophet's message was laid out. First indictment. Correct? Instruction. Judgment. Aftermath. When you study the prophets, they're going to be laid out exactly like that. So when you read, is it an indictment? Is it instruction? Is it judgment? Or is it after judgment? Okay, that's the way they're laid out. So the first thing we see in the prophet Isaiah in chapter 1, we have an indictment. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 26. Okay. Now going over to the other side of the envelope in chapter 5. We have in another indictment. Chapter 5 and verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray ye, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes... It brought forth wild grapes. So if you read chapter 1, verses uh, 1 through 26, you'll see God indicting the people. He's telling them what they're doing wrong. Okay? And again, in chapter 5, you have an indictment against the people to bring forth sour grapes. Now, in chapter 1, Verses 27 through 31, we have redemption. Verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed with judgment and her converts with righteousness. And keep on reading through verse 31, it speaks of, of redemption. Now, when you go to chapter 5 and you move from indictment, the next thing that you would be looking for is redemption. But there's no parallel there coming back from the fifth chapter. Okay. All right. You move to the next one, which is um, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, speaks of the latter days. Okay, chapter 2, verse 1, The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the last days, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. So what I'm doing is I'm giving the structure of the book. Okay. 
Many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us of His ways. We will walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So that's speaking of the latter days. Alright, go to chapter 4. As you move from chapter 5 in. Chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. In that day. Speaking of the latter days. In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. It shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remaineth in Jerusalem shall be called holy, even every one that is written among the living in Jerusalem. So that's a reference to the last day. So you see how it moves this way and this way in okay now the fourth statement is chapter 2 verses 6 through 19 I'm not going to read all the verses so you write these things down and read them later speaks of judgment chapter 2 6 through 19 therefore thou hast forsaken thy people the house of Jacob because they have uh, they be replenished from the east and are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they please themselves in the children of strangers. So keep reading on down, and you will see, this is speaking of judgment all the way through verse 19, chapter 2. Alright, y'all with me? Now go to chapter 3. As we come in, verses 1 through 41, we have again judgment. For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, doth take away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stay and the staff, the whole stay of bread and the whole stay of water. All the way through verse 41 of chapter... Let me see, I'm written it down wrong. Alright, chapter 3, all the way through the end of the chapter. Excuse me for writing it down wrong. Uh, speaks of judgment. You see that? Where God is going to take wholeness away. Okay, everybody see that? Alright, so you can see this is just basically a layout. Now in chapter 1 through chapter 39, we have the prophet's call to Israel for repentance. Chapter 1 through chapter 39. And then chapter 40 through chapter 6, we have hope given to the people of restoration. Okay, chapter 40, verse 1, that's why it says, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So we have there, as God is saying, your punishment is over. Okay. You didn't repent, chapter 1 through 39. Punishment came to you, but now the punishment's over, and it's time for you to be restored. Okay, that's chapter 40 through 66. So that gives you a basic, uh, basic layout or structure of the prophet Isaiah. I know that's a little heavy, but I'm going to give it to you anyway before we actually get into preaching the prophecy okay now historically geopolitically 
the powers that are in rule at that time is a power by the name of Assyria. Say with me, Assyria. Assyria is the boss. Okay? Assyria is basically, so you'll know on your map, it's up there in northern Iraq. If you were to look on your map today, northern Iraq is where ancient Assyria was. Now, coming down in, on the map, they swept all the way through Israel, and they even went down and they conquered Egypt. So they were a very, very vicious nation. They were all about dominance, world conquest. Assyria was the Russia of our day. Russia's desire is world dominance and world conquest. Assyria was like that. They wanted to conquer the then known world. So they are the boss when the prophet Isaiah is writing. First 39 chapters. <clears throat> the time frame is when Assyria is ruling. Chapter 40 through 66. Another empire that is on the horizon is called Babylon. It's on the horizon. Okay? And then Babylon eventually will conquer Assyria and it will become the world power. But when we begin the prophet Isaiah, Assyria is the world power of their day. Okay? Now, I'll come back to them in just a minute. Another power, Syria, not Assyria, but Syria, called Aram, A-R-A-M, Aram, is a power in that day. Then you have Judah, the southern kingdom, two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, the southern kingdom of whom this prophecy was given to. This prophecy was not given to Israel, the ten tribes. It was given to the true tribes of Judah. So you have the kingdom of Judah, two tribes, ruled by Hezekiah, then by Ahaz after, the, after him. And then you have Israel or Ephraim, the ten tribes, which is the northern kingdom that is in power at that day. So that's geopolitical setup. Assyria, Syria, Judah, and then the ten tribes called Ephraim or called Israel. They took the name Israel. Is everybody with me? Okay. Now, Assyria is a very vicious, cruel, world-dominating, world-conquering power. They are so vicious that when they would go and they would conquer people, they would literally impale people on sticks. They would flay you alive. While you were alive, they would flay your skin off of your body. If you survived their invasion and they didn't kill you, they would put a hook in, in your lips and drag you by horses to their empire. They were very, very vicious. They would take hot, white hot irons and put out your eyes. They were unmerciful. An unmerciful people. Okay? They were a people 
that you could not trust to enter into a treaty with. They might enter into a treaty with you just for the sake of entering into it to, to uh, propel their own desires and world conquest. But they have no desire of keeping the treaties that they would make with you. They would break every treaty with anybody that they ever made because it was all about world dominance and world conquest. Are you with me here at this point? They were seen or they looked at themselves as a superior race, sort of like the Nazis. This is the kind of people that they were. In a desire for world dominance and conquest, they were like the Russians. Okay? Uh, their ideal of being a superior race, better than anybody else on the planet, was like the Nazis of Germany. And that's the kind of people we're talking about. And at the time of the prophets, when Isaiah begins to prophesy, Assyria has their eye on Israel, the ten tribes. And they will conquer Israel in 721 to 722 B.C. Okay? Now, with their eye on conquering Israel, they also have their, on the, out of the side of their eye, they have their eye also on Judah, the ten tribes. So you can kind of get a feel for what Israel was going through as uh, they kept their eye on Assyria. What is Assyria going to do? Or Judah keeping their eye on Assyria. It would be kind of like if Russia was on, you know, you lived on the border next to Russia. And, uh, I mean, we have people today that know what that's all about. Living on the border and keeping your eyes, what's Russia going to do? They can come down any minute and try to conquer our land. And when they do, in that day, again, they will flay you to flay you alive. Okay? Impale you on sticks. Put your eyes out with what white, white hot irons. If you survive, they'd take you with a hook in your mouth to their land. They were cruel, sadistic people. Alright? Do you understand what I'm saying here? So there's a lot of uncertainty in the day of Isaiah for Israel and for Judah as well. Now, the ten tribes are called Ephraim or Israel have aligned themselves with Syria. They are in opposition against Assyria. But Judah, Ahaz, is in an alignment with Assyria. Okay? And so therefore the ten tribes of Israel and Syria are going to come down and go to war with Ahaz of Judah because he's basically made himself a servant to Assyria. And his brother kingdom Israel doesn't like it. And Syria doesn't like it. So they're going to invade into the land and try to go to war with Ahaz. And that will bring us to the seventh chapter. So it kind of gives you a little feel of the tension 
that is going on in that day. Now let me give you an overall sort of a background historically going from David. David made Israel great. King David, the warrior shepherd. He brought Israel as a whole into its glory. Okay? After David, we have Solomon. And then after Solomon, we have Rehoboam. And Rehoboam is the one who split the kingdom. Ten tribes, northern kingdom. Two tribes, Judah. You with me? When we get to the prophet Isaiah, Uzziah is sitting on the throne of Judah. He is the king of Judah. He's been reigning for 50 years. He almost brought Israel back to the glory days of David. Just almost. Economic prosperity. The armies of Israel thought they were the best armies on the earth. He had brought that nation into a state of glory, almost like the days of David. For 50 years. In the last three years of his life, he got sick in his body. And his son Jotham became a co-regent with him, ruling over Judah, the two tribes. When Uzziah gets sick, three years, and he becomes a, a co-regent with his son Jotham, that's when the cracks begin to appear in the nation. Corruption begins to come into the nation. I mean, soothsaying, you read the prophet Isaiah, all kinds of corruption, spiritism, you name it was going on in the nation. They were a mess. So that 50 years basically of Uzziah's reign of bringing Israel to a time of glory, when his son begins to take over the last three years of his life, that's when things begin to go downhill. That's when corruption begins to be seen in the nation. And then finally, it'll keep going downhill until 721, 722 B.C. The ten tribes go into captivity. And... Uh, and then uh, Judah will gradually begin to go down as well. And they will be taken captive by the Babylonians. So that sort of gives you a feel of the history that's going on. When Isaiah the prophet begins to prophesy, Israel is so afraid of their enemies, Assyria. The Bible says they shake, they tremble like the trees in the wind. They're so afraid of the Assyrians. And Ahaz's approach in the kingdom of Judah is just to align himself with Assyria. So he thinks that Assyria is going to help him when Syria and the ten tribes come and invade him. We'll see that in just a moment. God will tell him, don't trust in Assyria, trust in me. Okay, you with me here? Okay, so praise the Lord. To kind of get a little bit of an idea of the historical time frame. Now again, the prophecy of Isaiah 740 B.C. to about 701, 702 B.C. Uh, the Assyrian the Assyrian reign 
is going to fall within that time frame, 745 to 727 B.C. under a name by the a king by the name of Tiglath-Pileser III. He's also called King Pool in two, 2 Kings 15-19. You with me? So let me say that again. Isaiah's prophecy is from 740 B.C. to 702 B.C. Assyria's dominant reign is 745 B.C. to 727 B.C. under Tiglath-Pileser III. And then uh, the ten tribes are taken captive in 721 B.C. Alright, you with me here up to this point? Okay. So that gives you basically history and the geopolitical aspect of the prophet when he prophesies. Now, Isaiah is born around 720 B.C. And as a little boy, as he lived, he saw the ten tribes that were a separate kingdom from Judah. He lived in Judah, the two tribes. And from time to time, Isaiah would hear a, a, a preacher preach. One of the preachers that he heard preach was the prophet Hosea. When you read Hosea chapter 1 and then you see Isaiah chapter 1, it tells you they prophesied under the same kings. So when Isaiah was a little boy, he heard a prophet by the name of Hosea who was preaching in the northern kingdom, the ten tribes. He also heard another prophet preach. That prophet was Amos. Amos obviously is a little bit different kind of preacher. He's a shepherd, pincher sycamore fruit. But he heard, he heard both of those prophets preach. So he was very aware of prophetic preaching in his day. In fact, many things that Isaiah record in his book are also said in the prophet Isaiah. Some of the same language is used. So he heard those preachers when he was a little boy growing up preaching to the, the northern kingdom. As he's being raised in Judah, he'll become a preacher to the southern kingdom of Judah. <clears throat> the prophet Isaiah, not only did he hear powerful preachers preach in his generation, but he knew the book of Genesis through the book of Deuteronomy by heart. The prophet Isaiah probably had Genesis through Deuteronomy memorized verse by verse. He knew every word of it. And when you get in his prophecies, you see uh, references especially that are connected to the, to the book of Deuteronomy. He was a very, very educated preacher who had prophetic preachers that he heard preach in his lifetime like Hosea and Amos. And as a little boy in Judah, raised up there by his dad, Amos, the brother of King Amaziah, he heard all of this. He was raised in the court. And then God calls him to be a prophet. And he begins to prophesy, as I said, what was it, 740 B.C. to 701 B.C. Some of the greatest things that's ever been preached is preached out of the prophet Isaiah. His name, Isaiah, means Yahweh's salvation. When everybody looked at Isaiah, not only did he just did he speak his message, but he lived his message. When they looked at Isaiah, they saw personified the salvation of the Lord. 
They heard that man preach with, with such poetic ability and such awesome vocabulary that surely that these people that heard this man preach was influenced by prophets like Hosea and Amos who had such a knowledge of the Word of God, surely that that nation, chapter 1 through 39, surely they would repent and not go into judgment. But even Isaiah, the personification of the salvation of God Himself, could not turn the heart of those people. And so we talked about the message of the prophet last, uh, last week. Locution was the words of the prophet. Illocution was the way they delivered the message. Indictment, instruction, judgment in the aftermath. They heard that prophet preach the message, how he uses the words. And then his uh, prelocution, which was to get the people to respond. He asked God, Isaiah asked God, when I preach my message and I bring indictment, instruction, judgment, and aftermath in my message to these people and present it in an illocution, I expect for them to repent. Prelocution. But the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 6 that this man, raised up by God, asked the question, he says, how long have you me to preach? How long am I going to do this? And obviously, prelocution of the prophet is that the people are going to hear and they're going to repent. But look what God tells him. In verse 11, he said, Then said I, O Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitants houses without man and the land be utterly desolate and the Lord hath removed man far away there shall be a great forsaking in the midst of the land if you read verses 9 all the way down through what I just read God says to that prophet he says you're looking for a response from these people you bring your message and you break it down into those four categories that I covered you preach that, you're expecting these people to repent. But God says these people are not going to repent. They're going to get to a place. I said, how long do you want me to preach? And God says till the people stop listening. He said, you preach until these people no longer want to hear the message. They no longer want to obey the message. Is you preach until destruction has come. I mean, that's ironic because the preacher, the prophets were sent to preach their message and to break down their words, their messages into those categories we've covered to bring the people to repentance. But God says, ironically, the people are going to get to a place where they're dull of hearing. The people are going to get to a place where they're not going to want to hear you preach the Word. And when they get to that place, God says judgment's going to come upon them. Instead of getting the desired response of repentance, 
they're going to go the other direction and say, we don't want to hear, we don't want to obey, and judgment's coming. But God said, you keep preaching all the way, even though the desired response is not there. In Isaiah chapter 1, the Bible tells us in verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Gives us the time frame. That's how we can mark the time frame. 740 B.C. to 701, 702 B.C. His prophecy. The Bible tells us that the vision came to him. Last week we explained to you what the reason for prophetic literature is and that is to reveal God. So the first thing we see in verse 1 is that this is a vision that God gave Isaiah. And I might be boring you, but all, that's all I have to do is preach the Word to you. A vision, let me explain to you what a vision is. I've already covered this before, but if you go to Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, you'll find that a vision is given to reveal God. Somebody said, well, I had a vision. Well, what did you see? Well, I saw a hurricane yesterday, or a hurricane coming tomorrow. I saw a hurricane in my vision. Well, that may be true. But in the Word of God, visions that are seen are given to reveal something about the plan of God. Okay? And then... In that same chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, he talks about dreams. Dreams are not seen. Dreams are heard. So a vision is to give you a revelation of God, the godness of God, the trustworthiness of God. And a dream, if you have a dream, it's God telling you what His plan is. You say, don't say, I, I saw a dream. You're supposed to hear the dream. What God is doing. When you see a vision, it's all about God. It's about revealing God to His people. That God is God and God is trustworthy. And so when the Bible says a vision came to Isaiah, that means he had a revelation of God. We'll see in the sixth chapter, he's called the Lord. That's Adonai. That means master or owner. He is the sovereign of the universe. That means he can do whatever he pleases to do. He doesn't ask anybody what they think. He will do whatever he wants to do, whatever pleases him, because he is Adonai. He is a sovereign. He is the owner. He's the master of the universe. And so we will see in the 6th chapter when Isaiah is actually called into the prophetic ministry, what does he have? A vision of the Lord. Sitting on a, upon a throne, high and lifted up. The vision was to reveal God and the sovereignty of God, that God is in control of everything. And this was supposed to encourage the people in a time of a downward spiral in a time of calamity and woe, in a time of crisis, it was supposed to encourage the people. 
and tell them God is in control of everything. It doesn't matter what the calamity is. It doesn't matter what the crisis is. And so today as we stand here and preach you the word of the Lord, we have similar nations in the world today that are like Assyria and Syria and Israel and Judah. But the main thing is, even though the names have been changed in some cases, we still have to get the same vision that Isaiah saw. And no matter what the calamity is, no matter what the crisis is, God is sitting on His throne. If you don't, if you don't get that in the vision of Isaiah, you have completely missed the message of the prophet. It is to reveal God to you, to encourage you to put hope in your life, so that no matter what is going on around you, no matter how far down it's going, God is in control and He's going to do whatever He pleases to do. Amen? And He's so I'm telling you tonight, He's on the throne. Say praise the Lord. Alright, so as we go through this, you see Isaiah gives the indictment. Um, indictment, judgment, instruction, and aftermath. Let's go over to Isaiah chapter 6 and let's see what he receives from the Lord by way of a vision. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, that king that has brought Israel to prosperity, 50 years. This king is respected by the nation. This king is admired by his people. Isaiah probably was a very close friend to this king. The Bible tells us the time of economic prosperity and things are going well except for the last three years of his life when you study history. When Jotham, his son, begins to reign with him. That's when it begins to slide. And then the Bible says Uzziah dies. This earthly king, this mortal king, this king that is admired and respected, who has done so much for his nation. The kingdom of Judah. The Bible says he dies. And then the vision. He said, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne. What did he see? What was the vision? It was a revelation of God. He sees the Lord sitting upon the throne. The word Lord there, amen, are y'all here with me? Is Adonai. Isaiah says, I saw the sovereign of the universe sitting on his throne. I saw the one who owns everything. He said, I saw the one who's in control of everything. He's still on that throne. And even though that earthly, mortal king has died and the nation is grieving, Isaiah is allowed to go into the other side of the universe. We live in, on this side of the universe. We walk in physical bodies. We're touching physical things. But there's another side to the universe that's invisible. In case you don't realize it, I need to tell you, you live in two universes tonight. 
you live in a visible universe which you walk in that's physical. But the other half of the universe is a spiritual world that you and I also live in at the same time. And the Bible says when that earthly mortal king Uzziah died, that's when Isaiah was allowed to go into the other half of the universe, the invisible world, and he saw the Lord sitting upon the throne. That earthly throne of Uzziah was not the true throne. It was only a type of the throne that was in the other side of the universe in heaven. And so this prophet was allowed to go into the other side of the universe and see into that invisible world that we live in right now. You don't see that. You don't recognize that. But that's the truth. When I stand here and preach the Word of God to you tonight, don't think we're just in physical things. We're also involved in otherworldly activity, if you understand. There is another universe that you and I are operating in. And if God were so to choose, we could step right as if we were stepping into another room and He would show us prophetically things to come. We would see His throne. We would see angels if He allowed us to do that. It would be just like walking into another room, into another dimension. But I'm trying to tell you that this prophet, he didn't just live in the physical universe. God allowed him to see the other side of the universe which we all live in. And that's when he saw the invisible, the immortal, the true King of kings and Lord of lords. When an earthly king dies, the one that's the true king, you can't kill him. You can't touch him. And so, he sees the Lord sitting upon the throne and the Bible says, He is high and He's lifted up. He is the Most High God. Disease can't kill Him. You can shoot a missile and try to knock Him off His throne, but there's no missile that can reach Him. He's high and He's lifted up. He's on that throne and He's lifted up with worship and with praise and adoration. This is what Isaiah saw in a time when everything was falling apart. When everything, in fact, Isaiah was going to pieces. And we'll see that in just a moment. He will say out of his own mouth, I am undone. That means I am falling apart. My nation's falling apart. Everything around me is collapsing. I'm falling apart. I don't have it together. But that's when he was allowed to see the one that's sitting on the throne that keeps it all together. Amen. Are y'all here with me today? High and lifted up. And the Bible says his train filled the temple. There's more than one way to preach that. You can preach that as a train, like a wedding, like a wedding train that, that flows down through the temple. You can preach it that way if you choose to. But if you look at the margin of your Bible, the scripture says the skirts or the hems of his garment filled the temple. What that means is this, is that when they looked at that earthly temple, God, as big as that earthly temple was, it's supposed to be the biggest thing in Israel. Are you here with me? But when they, when he saw God sitting on the throne, and by the way, John says that was Jesus. 
This is Jesus, John says. And he says, when I saw him, just the hem of his garment filled the temple. That means as big and as large as the temple is. The only thing that the temple could hold of God was just the hem of his garment. That's how great he is. And so if you think Assyria is great and you think Assyria is powerful, God says, look at how great I am. That as big as the temple is, only a little part of my garment can fit in that place and a little part of my garment will fill the temple. So don't think Assyria is great. Don't think Babylon is great. When just a little piece of my garment fills the largest place in Jerusalem. That's how great I am. You need to get a, a revelation of God tonight. You need to get a vision of God tonight. That He's so great. He's bigger than anything. He's bigger than any kingdom, any nation. He rules the universe. Hallelujah to the Lamb. And so Isaiah said, yeah. He said, I got a glimpse of the one that's sitting on the throne. He said, the skirt of his garment, the hem of his garment, fills the whole place. I mean, that's just a small part. The rest, the rest cannot contain him. That, that's the point, is how great he is. And I told you Sunday night by the Holy Ghost that the devil comes to you and tries to make God little in your eyes. But I tell you tonight by the prophet Isaiah, if you'll get a vision of the Lord, no matter what the calamity is, you will see how great and how powerful He is. When Isaiah saw into that other universe, he said, this earthly temple right here is just a type or a shadow of the real thing. Because Isaiah said, what I saw was I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. And his train, just the skirts of his garment, filled that heavenly temple of which the earthly temple was only a top and a shadow. That's how great God is. That's how big he is. And if, if you're living in a time like Israel and you got your eyes cast, in, cast over onto a nation called Assyria that could sweep down and conquer you and flay your skin off of your body and impale you with sticks and put out your eyes with white hot irons and, or drag you to their empire with a hook in your mouth being dragged by horses. If you're living in those days and you're shaking like the trees in the wind, you need to hear from God that God says, I've got it all under control and I'm bigger than Assyria. It doesn't matter how much conquering territory that they have. It doesn't matter their power. I'm bigger than Assyria. I'm bigger than Babylon that's on the horizon. I'm in charge of everything. I'm here to tell you tonight in the Holy Ghost, I'm preaching by the Lord to this house because some of you in this last days, you think everything, yeah, it's all falling apart. It's getting worse. It's collapsing. You need to get your eyes on Jesus Christ and get your eyes off of your trouble. Get your eyes off of your problem because they are small in comparison to the God that's sitting on the throne. And I'm going to tell you His name. His name is not the God that the Sikh prayed to in the convocation. 
at the Republican National Convention. She said some name of some false god. That is not his name. His name is Jesus. They had a Muslim stand at the Republican National Convention and give the convocation there. I'm here to tell you tonight, Allah is not God. Jesus Christ is God. If I could speak to Donald Trump, I would tell him, you better watch out, sir, by calling on the name of a false God because you bring the disfavor of God Almighty upon this nation. You, We need God. Hallelujah. I said we need God as a nation. You don't try. I know you want to act like that you're all for all. You know, you want to promote all the face of America. No. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. There's only one God and His name is Jesus. And when the prophet got a revelation, he got a revelation that there's only one God. And John said his name is Jesus. A vision is to reveal God. A vision is to show you the godness of God, how great God is. The vision is to reveal to you how trustworthy your God is. So tonight I pray that you get a glimpse into the other side of the universe. Maybe you might be like John when he saw Jesus on the Isle of Patmos. He felt at his feet as a dead man. He was arrested by the greatness of Jesus Christ. Didn't have nothing to say. What are you going to say? in the presence of this great, great God. And so he said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord also sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the hem of His garments filled the temple. He's so great. The temple could not contain but just the hem of His garment. That's the point you got to get. That's what you got to see. Give the Lord praise in this house. It won't be too long that the ten tribes are going to be taken captive by Assyria. It won't be too long after that in 606 B.C. that Babylon takes Judah captive. Are y'all with me? Comes down. Are y'all with me? And then 597, another deportation. And 587, they're going to finally destroy the earthly temple. There's no temple. There's no Davidic king sitting upon a throne. But God said in 1 Samuel chapter 7, there's going to be a throne, a, a, a king sitting on the throne of David. And there's going to be a temple. What's happening here, God, when the captivities take place, there's no Davidic king and there's no more temple. They've been destroyed. But God said, I'm still going to fulfill my word. I'm going to raise up Messiah. I'm going to raise up the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one you see sitting upon the throne. I'm going to raise him up and he's going to sit on the throne of his father, David. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise in this house. When it looks like when there's no, nobody sitting on the Davidic throne and there's no temple, it's all been destroyed because of the judgments of God and they're ca taking captivity. How do we respond to that? God made a promise. It doesn't look like it's going to happen. How do we respond to that? Is God dead? I talked to a man just the other day. He said, I've got a good friend. I'm trying to win this man to the Lord. He said, I've got a good friend. He says... 
And he looks at all the calamities in the world and all the bad things that are happening to people. And he said, this friend of his says, I don't believe in God anymore because I see all the bad that's going on. If there is a God, how can this continue? That might have been the thought of that nation and that they were taken captive by the Assyrians, the ten tribes, and the two tribes later by Babylon with no Davidic king sitting on the throne and no temple. They might have thought to themselves, God is dead. Or maybe God just can't keep His promises. Or maybe God's just weak and got whipped by His enemy gods of other nations. Or maybe God has abandoned us. Or maybe God just can't do it. No, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord also sitting upon a throne and his train filled the temple he's got it all under control when we get through the time of judgment Messiah is going to be brought on the scenes hallelujah give God praise he his the earth shall be filled with his glory because when you think in your mind the devil comes to you and says well God is dead or God has abandoned you or God can't keep his promise that's when you need to open up the prophet Isaiah and see he's still on the throne tonight I said he's still on the throne and I'm coming here to worship him I'm coming here to praise him I'm not coming here to hang my head down I'm not coming here to be disenchanted I'm not going to be coming in here discouraged because my God is on the throne tonight And he will fulfill his promise. Isaiah says, verse 2, he said, Above that throne stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he did fly. What, are, what is a seraphim? The Bible says, Isaiah said, I saw seraphim above the throne. What is a seraphim? The word means radiant ones. These seraphim, these holy creatures, they're sort of hard to describe. They're, they're a part of the angelic community of God, the angelic host. They're sort of hard to describe, but other than just going by their name, radiant ones literally means they are ablaze when you see them they are like fire they are like lightning they are radiant they are ablaze they are the burning ones they are the shining ones and the bible says they're around his throne above his throne and what are they doing well the bible says they've got six wings and with two of those wings they cover their eyes as radiant and glorious as the seraphim is, the one that's sitting on the throne is so glorious that even they can't look at Him. No wonder John fell at his, on his face as a dead man when he saw Jesus in His glory. You hear what I'm telling you? They had to cover their eyes because the one that was on the throne was so radiant in glory. And then the Bible says with two, they covered their feet. What does that mean? 
That means humility. They're taking on the role of a servant. They're saying we humble ourselves before that one that's on the throne right there. We're going to cover our feet. We humble ourselves before God and we give ourselves to service. And then the Bible says the other two wings, with those other two wings, they did fly. They sounded like a 747 jet flying in there. Are you with me here today? If they were to come right now in this place, if you were to have a day of the Lord manifestation here tonight, it'd sound like a 747 jet landed in this place. With two, they did fly. That means this, that whatever the one on the throne wants them to do, they swiftly move. They don't, well, 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 let me think about it, God. Let me pray about it, God. No, when the Lord says do it, they go, swiftly obedient, swift obedience, fly like the lightning. Hallelujah, give God praise in this house. So you'll notice something here. That these seraphim are using their bodily parts to worship him. Somebody said, Well, give me some, give me some Bible for what you do when you go to church. You clap your hands, you lift your hands, you run, you shout. They said, Give me scripture. I'm fixing to give you scripture. Because the seraphim use their bodily parts to worship him. Are y'all with me? Now, not only are their body parts used to worship him. But the Bible says they say something with their lips. And one cried unto another and said, say it with me. Come on, say it again. Wake up, say it again. All right, let's try it again. Hold on. Everybody say, holy. Say it again. Come on, wake up. Oh, come on, you can do better than that. Come on. Right? So they're using their lips to worship Him. All of their faculties, all of their bodily parts, and with their mouth, they're praising Him. You want Bible for us lifting our hands and clapping our hands and running? I'm using my bodily parts tonight to worship the one that's sitting on the throne. You want... You want scripture for what I do with my mouth? I'm giving you scripture tonight. They use their lips to shout the praise of God. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise. He said, He's holy, He's holy, He's holy. They're not praising His holiness. They're declaring who He is. When you say God is holy, you're saying that He's separate and apart. He's holy, He's separate. Holiness simply means to be set apart. And when you say that God is holy, you're saying He's set apart to Himself. He don't need anybody. He's holy within... Holiness is is really it's more than an attribute of God holiness is who God is holy, all the attributes of God are in the word called holiness because he set apart unto himself in his power he set apart unto himself in his love he set up all his attributes is set apart unto himself hallelujah somebody said God created the world because he was going to be lonely and he wanted somebody to talk to. 
No, God is holy. He's set apart unto himself. All, everything he needs, he finds within himself. He joys within himself. His, the holiness of God is really who God is. If you want to call it the chief attribute, fine. But all the other attributes of God are really in that, that word holy. Isaiah uses this term holy more than any other place in the Bible. He is arrested by the holiness of God. He's separate. He's undefiled. He's separate from sinners. There's nobody like Him. Give the Lord praise in the house. And so really they're not praising His holiness. They're just declaring that's who He is. He's holy. He's holy. He's holy. And they repeat it. And the Bible says in the book of Revelation, this is something that goes on seven days a week, time-wise. Time 24 hours a day. They cry day and night. He's holy. He's holy. He's holy. So they worship Him with all of their body parts. And they worship Him with their lips. Everything that they have, they worship Him. Yeah, it's bad on planet Earth. There's calamity everywhere. Everything's falling apart. Everything's going downhill. Judah's not what it's supposed to be. It's gradually going downhill. The ten, ten tribes are just rapidly going downhill. The judgment of God is coming. But God is still on the throne. And He's going to keep His promise. He's a great big God. Anybody ask you, why are you clapping your hands? Because I'm supposed to use every part of my body. My feet were made to worship Him. My hands were made to worship Him. Every part of my body was made to worship Him. My mouth was made to worship the one that's sitting on the floor. He said, well, I don't see Him. I don't see Him. If I could see Him like Isaiah, then I would do it. I'm giving you revelation of it right now. I'm giving you the vision right now. You need to join the seraphim and give God praise. When I don't want to sweat, I don't want to mess my hair up. God gave you, your la you ladies your hair so you could cover. So that when the angels looked at you, they know they cover in the presence of a holy God. So God said to you ladies, I'm going to give you hair so that when you come in the presence of God, it shows your reverence and your respect for God that's sitting upon the throne. Don't cut your hair because you have power on your head for the angel's sake. And when they look at you, they say, that's a woman that's in submission to God like we're in submission to God. Every part of our bodies are given to worship and glorify the King of kings and Lord of lords. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise. The Bible says the whole earth is full of His glory. The whole earth. Tomorrow when you get up or even tonight when you walk out of this church everything that you see I'm not saying every tree is God. But when you see a tree, you ought to see the glory of God. 
everything that you see, you should say, that's the glory of God right there. That reveals the glory of God. Everything, the whole earth is filled with His glory. Give God praise in this house. It says, And the post of the door moved at the voice of Him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. When they started worshiping God, things began to move. Okay? I'm going to try to help you. I'm not trying to beat you up. But you can sit there and look at me bug-eyed all you want. But if you want something to move in your life, if you want, if you want objects, physical objects to move in your life, the way you move them is by worship. The post of the doors moved. Are y'all hearing me? When you worship God, things will move. You could, see, that's the problem a lot of times the devil wants you to come in here and just sit down and feel sorry for yourself and it's so bad. There's crisis, you know. No. The way to move things in your life is to begin to worship God. Begin to praise Him with, with the, all, of, all of your body parts. With your lips. Everything you got. And I promise, you know what? People who are worshipers see things happen in their life. People who don't worship, all they do is sit around and feel sorry for themselves. No, I'm going to see something move. I'm going to move. I'm going to watch. God's going to do something here. His, His voice is going to come forth. When I worship Him, His voice is upon the waters. His, His voice is, is in that glory. When I give Him glory, He speaks. When I give Him glory, I can hear Him talk. When I give Him glory, His power is manifested. You want something to change? Some of you some of y'all, uh, y'all got this revelation. Because y'all, y'all, y'all put this into practice. The things weren't the way you wanted them in life. And you said, okay, I'm not going to just sit down and sit on my laurels. I'm not going to settle down on my lees. So I'm going to get up and I'm going to, I'm going to worship God. And I'm going to praise Him. I'm going to pray. And I'm going to declare His holiness. I'm going to declare how great He is. It doesn't matter what's going on around me. Everything may be falling apart. But I know that God is in charge of my life. I know that God is in control of everything that's going on in my life. If you want something to change in you, first, see, you got to change. A lot of times, God allows you to be in situations. And we walk around and say, God, change this. Change that. God says, I'm not going to change that till I change you. And when I change you, and when you get where you're supposed to be, then I'll change everything else around you. But you've got to be willing to worship God. And you might, not, you might be shaking like the trees in the wind with fear tonight. But I'm here to tell you, God is great. He's great. Now watch. The post of the doors moved. At the voice of him that cried, the house was filled with smoke. Now when Isaiah sees the Lord, his response, when he sees these heavenly creatures 
totally given to God. Their body parts, their lips, worshiping God, declaring His holiness. See, I got a question for you today. You can sit down. You can you can jump back up in a minute. But I got a, I got a question for you today. How many of y'all like for an angel to come and visit you right now? Well, that'd be awesome, wouldn't it? That'd be really cool, man. God, would you send an angel to talk to me right now? I want to see an angel. And we get so excited about the concept or the thought of an angel coming to visit us. You don't realize that you were created on a higher level than an angel. You are the highest of God's creation. It shouldn't be, well, if an angel comes to see me, I'll get excited. No, the angel should get excited because I want to go pay them a visit. Man, I got Holy Ghost all over me right now. Oh God, I want to see an angel. No, angel, I'm coming to visit you. I mean, that, that's, that's, you know, they should get excited. When a man, Isaiah, sees God's creation worshiping him that way, with body and with lips, he says, Woe is me. He said, Calamity is what I am. I don't even know who Calamity Jane was. And I heard that there's somebody named Calamity Jane. Uh, she might be the most worst devil of all time. I don't know. But Isaiah, when he saw the Lord, he got a glimpse of, of the God of glory. Jesus Christ. He said, call me Calamity. He said, woe is me. He said, I'm walking Calamity. See, now listen, listen carefully. Before he got this vision of God, he was walking around. And I can prove it by the text. He was walking around and everything he said was about how great he was. Right? Until he sees those seraphim using their mouth to praise the Lord, not themselves. When he saw the Lord, when, when, listen, okay, I'm not going to keep you long. But when you get a revelation of God like Isaiah did, you're not going to walk around thinking you're anything big. You're, you're, you're not going to walk around thinking about how great you are. When you get a vision of God, when you get a revelation of God, you also get a revelation of yourself. And that's why pride makes God absolutely sick. In the Holy Ghost, somebody walked in this church tonight and you're full of yourself. You're full of pride. And that's bringing the judgment of God upon your life because you think it's all about you. No, that's the problem with Isaiah. He said, I'm calamity. He said, woe is me. What does he say? I'm undone. 
Literally what he says when he gets a revelation of God, he gets a revelation of himself. And he says, I'm undone. Or literally, I am unmade. I'm unmade. I don't have it together. I'm a mess. Because I've seen the Lord. See, the closer you get to God, the more revelation you get of yourself. And you'll say, yeah, I'm, I don't have it together. I'm falling to pieces. Everything's collapsing around me. I'm collapsing right now. I'm undone. I'm unmade. But watch. He continues. Because I am a man. Stop there. You don't have to keep reading. You need to stop and dissect every word. Woe is me. I'm calamity. I'm undone. I'm unmade. I don't have it together. I'm falling to pieces. I'm a man. Look at your neighbor and say, you're a man. If it's a woman sitting you by you, just say, you're mankind. There you go. You're mankind. All right, you understand? You're not God. You're a human being. Now, I know that's a huge revelation to some of you, but that's the truth. I'm a human being. You're a human being. I'm not God. You're not God. You don't have it all together. You're undone. You're falling apart. You're going to pieces. You know why? Because you're getting more of a revelation of who God is. When you get a revelation of the greatness of God, you see how small you are. That you're just a human being. He said, I'm a man. I I pray to God when I get through preaching here, some of you get a revelation that you're a human being. Because some of y'all walk in here, you're so cocky. You're so full of pride. You can't say hello to nobody because I don't know, you got some kind of issue in your life. You need to recognize today you're a human being. You have, I have come into this place to worship the one that's sitting upon the throne tonight. You need to get the victory over yourself, over your pride, over your ego. If you don't, God will humble you. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm a mankind. I'm a mankind. Yeah, you're human. Praise the Lord. Notice out of, out of everything, please sit down. Out of all the sin that he could have confessed before the Lord, can you imagine? If you were to be standing before the Lord tonight and you saw a vision of God, think about all the sins that you could confess to him. What would you tell him? Boy, you got anything? You're thinking now. What would you tell him? It is interesting to me that out of everything that Isaiah could have confessed to the Lord by way of his shortcoming, 
He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Why would he focus on his lips? Does that, does that mean that Isaiah was walking around cussing all day long? Like some of you? No, I don't think Isaiah was walking around cussing. I don't think Isaiah had a slip of the tongue. Like some of y'all say, well, I had a slip of the tongue. You always having a slip of the tongue. It wasn't about the slip of the tongue. It wasn't about that he was walking around cussing all the time. He's a man of unclean lips. That's What does it mean? He saw those seraphim using their lips to worship God. And his life evidently was not, his lips were not used on the behalf of another. It was used to say, it's about me. See, a human being, until they get a revelation of God, will go through their whole life using their lips to say, it's about me. Their whole life is caught up in their own little world. And it's so small. And I feel sorry for some of you because your whole world is about you. It's about you. What happens to your little family? Isaiah, until he got a revelation of the greatness of God and His humanity, he walked around like that. It was about Isaiah. It was about King Uzziah. His friend had just died. The economic prosperity of the nation. How great they were. Until he sees those seraphim that are created a little lower than he is using their lips for another purpose than to glorify themselves. They were using their lips to glorify God. You know what? You, everybody here knows. We all know. And I'm a human being just like you. I'm not preaching down to you. I'm preaching to myself today. But every one of us know what the center letter of pride is. No wonder he said, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm humanity. I've been using my lips for the wrong thing. And then I saw God, and when I saw God sitting on the throne, and I saw His creation using their lips and their body parts to glorify God, He said, I said, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Doesn't mean they were all using profanity. They were all walking around focused about their own humanity and how great they were, and it's all about me. No, it's about God. I want you to understand when you study these things, you need to spend some time and think about them. Out of everything he could confess, he said, I'm a man of unclean lips. Because I saw somebody using theirs the right way. 
John, as I told you, fell at, his, at the feet of Jesus as a dead man. I don't have anything to say, John said, by his actions. I don't have anything to say. I fall at his feet. Who am I to think that I can speak of myself in the presence of this awesome God? I go to my face as a dead man, as somebody that doesn't have anything to say about himself. No wonder he pinpointed his failure. The most important thing was his mouth. You know what he do when he start praying, God, set a guard over my mouth because I got mouth disease. I got a disease of the mouth, and it's not it's not just bad breath. You know this guy? He's advertising this deal. He said you can take this stuff and it'll give you good breath for twenty four hours. He said it's a sulfur problem. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you You and I don't have control of our mouth. We're always saying things that get in this trouble. Always, you understand? We got a disease of the mouth. We need to start using our mouth for the right purpose. And that's to glorify Jesus Christ. He's the one sitting on the throne. I'm going to pieces, Pastor. Good. It's about time. Good. I'm falling apart, Pastor. It's about time. You recognize it. Good. Because then maybe you'll stop walking around thinking that you're so great. And you'll start worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. And you'll start... I can stand here tonight and I can preach to you for my own edification because it makes me feel good. I can use my lips doing holy things for the wrong reason. Or I can stand here and I can preach the Word of the living God with a desire to glorify Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. And I might fall on my face. I might be undone. I might not have it together. I might be falling apart. But if I can just somehow use my body parts and my lips to worship Him, if I can cover my eyes because His glory is so great, cover my feet because I humble myself before Him and fly in instant obedience to God and shout, He's holy, He's holy, He's holy. I'm a man and he's not. He's the only one that has life within himself. He, you, somebody had to give you life. Nobody gave him life. He is life. Nobody gave him light. He is light. Nobody gave Him power. He is power. Nobody gave Him joy. He is joy in and of Himself. If you can receive this, He dances in celebration 
of his own attributes to himself, unto himself, and for him. He, we don't have anything that we can add to God. We have to just recognize, Lord, this is who you are, and I'm going to bring my body, and I'm going to bring my mouth, and I'm going to praise you, and I'm going to stop talking about how good I am and great I am, and, and well, God, you are worthy to be praised. And if you're undone today, and you're falling apart, good. Because then you'll get your eyes on the Lord and get your eyes off of yourself. Amen? We need God. Hallelujah. Let me finish. He says, And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one flew, then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. The altar is talking about that altar of sacrifice. He goes and gets that, that coal off of that altar, the altar where blood was shed. The good news tonight is that when we recognize we're human, we recognize we're undone or we're unmade, falling apart. When we recognize we haven't used our lips in the proper way, the good news tonight is that there's a cross. There's a place where somebody named Jesus died for you. The one that Isaiah saw sitting on the throne died for you and I and shed His blood so that we could be cleansed of our uncleanness. That's why I say if you are at the bottom, if you're undone, if you're falling apart, that's good because maybe you'll fall at the bottom of the cross. And you'll get honest with God and you'll say, God, I thought I was something for a while, but I recognize now I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. In the name of Jesus. That coal came off of that altar where sacrifices were made, blood was shed. They would take the coals off of that altar of sacrifice where the blood was shed and they would put those coals on the altar of incense. The same coal. When that seraphim gets the coal off of the altar, he doesn't place it on the altar of incense. He places it on the lips of the prophet so that the prophet's lips become the altar of incense. When you come and you recognize your humanity and your need of God and you need blood to save you and forgive you, then God's going to take a live coal. He's going to, instead of putting it on the altar of incense, He's going to put it on your lips. And then you'll start using your lips the way the seraphim used their lips. You're going to become an altar of incense, a praise unto your God. Hallelujah to the Lamb. 
in the mighty name. I pray, God, over this sanctuary right now, from one end to the other end, God. I pray you give a revelation to all of these people in this house tonight that they need to be cleansed and they need to have their language touched. You need to get a vision of the greatness of your God when everything's falling apart. In times of crisis, you need a vision and you need forgiveness and He made provision for you to be cleansed. And you need a change from a person who uses their lips in an inappropriate way to a person that becomes an altar of incense unto your God. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise. He laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips and thine iniquity is taken away. Thy sin is purged. If you leave from this sanctuary tonight recognizing your humanity and just how much you need God and how, how messed up you are. If you leave the same way, you didn't get the vision. Because God wants to let you know that your iniquity has been purged. Your iniquity has been taken away. And so now you can stand there and worship Him. I'm telling you tonight. Listen. No wonder Moses said, let God arise and let His enemies be scattered. If I can ever, by the grace of God, get some of you to change your vision and start trusting God your whole life, as Isaiah the prophet said to his nation, you've run in after strangers. You're always looking for somebody else to help you. And I do believe that God uses people. But at some point, you need to start recognizing that the Lord is sitting on the throne and that God is in control. He's cleansed me with His blood. He's turned my lips into an altar of incense. The man didn't talk about how great he was. He talked about how undone he was. God will always come to people who humble themselves and recognize their need. You come in here, I promise you, you'll never get the help you need. It's people who come broken. It's people who come weeping. It's people who know they failed and know they've come short of the glory of God and say, I need the blood of Jesus to cleanse me. And I want Him to turn me into an altar of praise. In verse... 8, God allows Isaiah, and you've heard me preach this before, but not totally exactly like this, because the Word of God's so full, you can never preach everything that's there. So I've preached this before, but there, there's a lot of things I'm telling you tonight I didn't, I've never told you before. But you've heard this before. As he sees the Lord Jesus sitting on that throne, God, the God of glory, if you want to know who Jesus is, you need to read your Bible. He's God. There's only one throne. John says He was Jesus. 
God allows him to hear. He allows him to overhear. He allows him to eavesdrop. Some of you think it was your ideal to do this or to do that. I'm going to go do this for God. You think it was your ideal? No. God lets you hear His plan. Overhear His plan. Eavesdrop. And He said, here I am, I'm going, send me. And you walked out like it was your ideal. No, it was God whispering into your ear. And when you went and done it, it was His will, but you thought it was you all along. No, God just let you listen in. The prophet listens in, eavesdrops. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, the Lord is saying this within Himself. I mean, I'm not sure about this, but I, I don't, I'm not sure that God is sitting on the throne saying, Whom shall I send? I mean, He might be. Or maybe He just speaking within Himself. Whom shall I send? And the prophet says, Here I am. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? I said, hey, 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 God. You need somebody to go? Here I am. Send me. What would you do? You'd probably say, here he is. Send him. Amen. After after twenty something years of ministry, I'm I'm at that place. Here he is, send him. I told a friend of mine yesterday, I'm trying to get him here. He's coming, he's moving gradually. I said, you know, your season may be fixing to come. My season's almost over. He said, oh, you kind of like a, a bull? He said, they, you know, the bull, after his time of reproduction, they put him out to pasture. And I said, I'm not a bull. I'm not a bull yet. I'm not going to be put out to pasture. Be quiet. I'm not going to be. He's like, God, he, he's not even in the church. He's already speaking the Word of God to me. I said, God, I just heard God speaking through you. I'm not a retired bull. Fixing to be put out to pasture. I don't know this guy. He's not even, he not even have the Holy Ghost yet, but he's, from time to time, he's ministering to me. I know God's got His hand on him for a great purpose. I told him yesterday, I said, I don't know what you're on planet Earth for. You don't know yet either. But God's going to do something mightily with you. And he's getting close to coming to the church. And I told him, I said, when you come, what you're going to get. I told you what I'm. I told him what I'm preaching on Sunday morning. I told him what I was preaching on Wednesday night. I said, this is what you're going to get. You come. You don't want. It, you don't want nothing to do with it. If it's not for you, I said that's your choice, not mine. That's your choice, not mine. I'm just a witness. Amen. 
then at least give yourself a chance. Now see, sometimes we think we're the ones that, yeah, okay, God, I'm decided to do this for you. No, it was God's ideal all along. You just thought you did. you you just thought you were the one that decided to do it. You overheard God, and then you said, "Okay, I'll go do it." God gets the glory. Amen. No, really, here I am. Send him. I'm there. <laughs> but one thing about it. I don't know what ultimately, I'm just telling you the truth. I don't know what ultimately I'm going to do. I feel like I'll probably preach until the day I die. I didn't say I was going to pastor until the day I die. Because that will put me in an early grave. <laughs> but just because I don't pastor don't mean I'm not going to preach. Okay? Amen? So I just want to keep eavesdropping on the Lord. I just want to keep on hearing what God is saying from the throne and I want to bring it to you. Because ultimately it's His Word anyway. It's not mine. But I have to have the ability to hear. I see. You see the revelation of God. I want to hear. Do you have the ability to hear God? How many of you have heard God recently? God let you eavesdrop? You heard God. Amen. You should be hearing Him all the time. God's always talking. He never stops talking. If He ever stops, well, sometimes He stops talking, but not very often. God is always talking. If you haven't heard God lately, you're not listening. Because God is always talking. Amen. Except maybe. And, and I doubt it. God help us if we're like the nation of Israel. Where we have got to a place. Where we don't want to hear it no more. But God's going to have Himself a witness. And as I come to a close. And I'm going to go into the seventh chapter just briefly. As I come to a close. I want to tell you something. Sometimes we say these prophets are prosecuting attorneys. Really, God is the ultimate attorney. We're just witnesses. That's all we are. I'm not sent here to win the case. I'm sent here to be a witness for the attorney. He's the one that wins the case. I'm just a witness. And I have to remember that and you have to remember that. Because if you don't, you'll get discouraged. Because you think, you're supposed to win them. You're supposed to win the case. No, you're supposed to be a witness. He wins the case. The problem with Israel is that they're going to get to a place where they don't want to hear it anymore. They don't want to obey. And God says judgment's coming. But after the judgment, restoration. And so he hears the Lord. He says, here I am, send me. He said, go and tell this people. Hear you indeed, but understand not. See you indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat. Make their ears heavy. And shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. That's God's desire. 
God desires every one of us to be healed. The problem is when the Word goes forth, some people don't want to hear it no more. And they don't want to obey it anymore. But God wants to heal. Then said I, Lord, how long? He answered, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant. The houses without man, the land be utterly desolate. That's sad. God said, you keep preaching until they don't want to hear it anymore. You keep preaching until destruction comes upon the land. But yet in it shall be a tent. There's going to be a remnant. It shall return and shall be eaten until tree as an oak whose substance in them when they cast their leaves so a holy seed shall be the substance thereof. And from there he goes out to fulfill his call. In the sixth chapter, this is his call. The first five chapters laid out exactly what he's going to preach. The state of Israel, the judgment, followed by restoration. And that's his message for the rest of, of the book of Isaiah. He walks out and he meets a man in the field named Ahaz. The king of Judah, the one who has followed Uzziah, Ahaz is in alliance with Assyria, trusting Assyria for his help. You read the chapter. The king of Israel, the ten tribes, have got into an alliance with Syria. And they're fixing to attack Ahaz because of his alliance with Assyria. And God... <clears throat> through the prophet Isaiah, speaks to Ahaz in this Emmanuel section of Isaiah. Don't trust in Assyria. Trust in God. Tiglath-Pileser III, the Assyrian king. King Paul is in alliance with Ahaz. The Bible tells us as the king of Syria and the king of Israel make a plan to go against Ahaz because of his alliance. You can look at the background of this in 2 Kings 16. Historical background. Isaiah goes out and he meets Ahaz in verse 10. Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. And he said, Hear you now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? See, Ahaz says to the prophet, no, I'm not going to ask a sign from God. God told him to ask for a sign. He said, no, he's self-righteous. He's really full of pride. The prophet tells him from God what he needs to do, but he doesn't do it because he's full of pride. But he wants it to sound like. You know, sound good. No, I'm, I won't ask a sign from the Lord. 
And so you know what God does? God says, you're not going to ask a sign from me. He said, I'll give you my own sign. And it's a sign to encourage Ahaz to not trust in world powers. And it's a well-known prophecy. Verse 14, Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold a virgin, an almond, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In Matthew 1.23 we know that means God with us. Ahaz, don't put your trust in Assyria to help you against Israel, the ten tribes, and against Syria. You trust God. You put your hope in Him. God's going to give you a sign. An alma, the Hebrew word alma, for Ahaz's day. And I know it's Ahaz's day. The prophecy is given for it because in verse 16 it tells us, For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. God said, I'm going to take care of you. <coughs> And when Israel invades to go to war with you and Syria goes to war with you, he said, I'm going to take care of you. And both those kings are going to be removed before that king, before that child is able to discover certain things. So I know this prophecy that's given is for that day. Present. A present need. Prophecies about the present. So Ahaz, here's the sign. An alma in the Hebrew, or the Bible tells us a virgin. That word in this context means a young, marriageable woman. A young woman that's of age to be married. That's all that word means. There's a woman that's of marriage age. She's going to be with a child. And he's going to be called Emmanuel. And that's what you need to focus on, Ahaz. And this time, your life, not the child, but the name of the child. God with us, or literally with us, God. Emmanuel, with us, God. I don't know who this young woman was. I don't know if it was the prophet Isaiah's wife or who it was. But there was a child that was born to a young marriageable woman that they called Emmanuel. And that child declared to Ahaz, God is with us. And before that child gets to the age where he recognizes certain things in verse 16, God said, I'm going to take care of these kings that are coming against you. When you get into over into the New Testament, the, the Greek word that is used there, I'll spell it for you. P-A-R-T-H-E-N-O-S, Parthenos takes it a step further. 
Now, parthenos means a young woman that is of marriageable age. And there's something about her sexual experience. That's what the Greek means. In this case, it means she has no experience sexually. And in the English, it's translated virgin. And when you get in Matthew chapter 1, the focus becomes upon the child that's virgin born. So that present prophecy that saw application Ahaz day to encourage him to put hope in him. In the New Testament, Matthew 1.23, we see a greater fulfillment. Behold a virgin in the English, Parthenos in the Greek. A young woman of marriageable age who has not experienced sexual relationships before. This woman shall be with child. Shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. In Ahaz's day, the child being born is not the miracle. The name of the child is the miracle. And that's what he's supposed to grasp and understand. God is with us. But in the New Testament, when Jesus Christ comes into the world, it's not only the name that is the focus, it's the miracle birth of this child. This young, marriageable woman never had sexual experiences before. ultimate sign to all of us that gives us encouragement and hope that God is with us in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. So it may look like these powers invading and conquering that God doesn't keep His promise. God may be dead God maybe has abandoned His people. But the Lord says, no, I'm going to give you a sign. And its ultimate fulfillment will be in Jesus Christ. He is the God-man. And virgin birth, virgin birth of Jesus Christ is a miracle. If you don't believe that, you can't be saved. Because if he wasn't virgin born, he has a sin nature. If he wasn't virgin born, he can't be your Savior. If you don't believe in the virgin birth, you don't, you can't understand, you won't believe that God created the heavens and the earth. God gave him a sign. So God gives an indictment. He said, Judgment's coming. He gives him instruction how to make it right. And he says, What's going to come after the judgment? no matter what it looked like in their day. Isaiah walked around the personification of the salvation of God whose name, his name means the salvation of Yahweh. And they saw it. Not only did they hear him preach, but they saw it in his life. And he declared the revelation of God 
and no matter what it looked like, how great God was. And when a man was tempted to put his confidence and his trust in other things, he was told, don't put your trust in Assyria. Don't put your trust in men. Put your trust in God. Amen. And amen. Would you stand? Father, we come before you. We thank you tonight, God, for your mighty presence. We thank you for your salvation. We thank you for all that you have done. Because, Lord, we depend upon you. I pray tonight that this church, this congregation of amazing people would be encouraged by this word that you're sitting on the throne. You're in control. We put our trust in you tonight, God. In Jesus' name. Amen. As you stand there with your eyes closed, if you'd like to lift your hands like the seraphim, using their body parts, you'd like to use your lips for something other than to glorify yourself, you may begin to worship Him Declare that He is your God. Declare to Him that you put your trust in Him tonight. Though you may be undone, He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. So as I as I dismiss you at this time, you need to realize that there's so many things going on in nations of the world around us, just like in the days of Isaiah. As you see these nations, the names are different. But there's still nations that are trying to conquer the world like Russia, like Assyria did in their day. A lot of things going on in the United States of America. We need to stand where Isaiah stood and say the Lord sitting on a, upon a throne high and lifted up and understand that only a part of his garment could go and fill that temple because he's so large. Put your trust and confidence in him, not in men. You're dismissed in the name of the Lord. God bless you.